How's everybody doing? Doing good? Just by a show of hands, is, does anybody ever feel just like th- this attack, like a warfare constantly going on? <laughs> constantly? Not constantly, but um, has anybody felt it kind of been ramping up? It's, I, I felt it in the last probably month or so, especially this last week. Um, just the enemy um, feels like we're in a war. You know why it feels like we're in a war? Because we are in a war. That's right. Um, I'm going to share a, a real quick dream I had. Again, I wasn't going to share this, but God was showing me this as I was sitting down here. Um, I'll share a dream, and then I'm going to go into prayer and go into my message. But I had this dream. In this dream, I was climbing uh, this mountain. Uh, and again, I, I've had many, many, many dreams. And some are, some are bad pizza dreams. Uh, some are, you know, just God trying to teach me something. But this dream was something that has stuck with me probably for the last 15 years. In this dream, I was climbing this mountain. And it, it, if you kind of picture what it was like, it was kind of like Lord of the Rings. I mean, there was fireballs flying all over the place. There was lightning going on. L- millions of people climbing this mountain. Um, just to make it really short, the mountain was the mountain of the Lord. And we were climbing and climbing it. And as I got cl- farther and farther, I felt like I had reached the top. And it was just like I had reached like the first level of Mount Everest. It was like, okay, I, I thought that was the top. And it was like, and I got to the next level, and like, that wasn't the top. And it was like every time I got to the next level, it was like another base level. As I was going up this mountain, people were falling off this mountain by the thousands. And it was just one of those dreams where I woke up just broken. And two of my best friends, actually, as I got to this one plateau, were climbing backwards past me. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, we can't, it's too hard. We can't, we can't do it anymore. I was c- kept on going, and at one point, it got so hard that I actually let go of one of my hands. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And the Lord reached down, and he gave me a pair of gloves. Um, the best way to describe it, they were black, and they had, uh, like, this yellow plastic stuff on them. And I took my son to this bouncy house once, and they gave you these socks that have like, this special grip on the bottom. That's exactly what the Lord gave me for my hands. And I grabbed on, and I kept on going, and that was the dream. The reason I want to share that is I really believe that the gloves— uh, I mean, I, I, first and foremost, to make it through the battle, you have to be connected to the mountain. You have to be connected to the Lord. That's really number one. Number two, the gloves represent, I believe, the fivefold ministry. It's the body of Christ. You will not make it in this battle without that fivefold ministry. Fivefold ministry is teacher, pastor, apostle, prophet, evangelist. We have to lean on one another, guys, to make it in this battle. We give each other strength, encouragement, breakthrough, prayer, all those things. Um, so one of the things I'm going to do today, I'm going to teach on some stuff. I'm going to teach predominantly on Matthew 15 uh, through 17. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about some different things the Lord's put on my heart. And again, there's been warfare surrounding all this. And uh, I'm glad for it because if the enemy brings warfare, it means I think we're doing something right. right? Okay, let's pray. Father, <laughs> you are just amazing. You're beautiful. You are kind. Lord, I love the body of Christ only because you love the body of Christ and you have put that in me, and I know you put it in many, many people here. God, I pray you would cause our love for you to grow. I pray, Father, that you would cause our love just spill over. It would be like a river just flowing in us today. Father, God, I pray that you would open up the, uh, the eyes and the ears of our heart. God, that you bring revelation. And God, I, again, I just love you. I was telling Andy earlier, I was having a story with my son. Uh, I took him on a date night on Thursday, 
And uh, I was teaching him how to hear the voice of God. And I, he's like, I, I can't hear the voice of God. I said, okay, well, it's about opening your heart and the ears of your heart, and you listen to him. And he's like, no, Dad. That's how your heart doesn't have ears. <laughs> and it was like, okay, that's, that's fair enough. You're right, you're right. And it was cool, though. Um, you know, I just I love that story because it's, it's bringing things down to a simple level. Um, and again, I feel like the Lord is today, some of the things he's put in my heart, he actually put this on my heart probably over two months ago to, to speak on. And uh, it's real simple, but again, I'm going to kind of break it down, not because you guys are simple-minded, but actually because God is very simple in nature, I think. And I think when he just, you share truth, he's the one that brings the revelation and the depth to it, right? Um, so have you ever noticed, one thing I noticed as, again, last time I shared, I shared about my mom's testimony. Uh, actually, my, my testimony, and about a lot of it included my mom and when she passed away when I was 15. I was privileged enough that when she passed away, she wrote down these journals, that she actually had her journals for most of her life. Um, and when she passed away, she handed all these journals to the kids. One of the journals was an actual Bible that she gave to me. In the back of this, um, she had written out most of Second Timothy, where Paul is exhorting Timothy, you know, do the work of an evangelist. You know, remember the, the anointing that was stirred on by me and by your mother, grand, you know, grandmother. But every time she, that Paul writes Timothy, my mom wrote Daniel. And she it was just, I, I cherished that. I also cherished her journals. Um, and I started to realize, and this is true, I think, pretty much for everybody. You probably all have your own story. But I pretty much realized that when people come to the end of their life, what means the most to them? Relationships, those are the things that come out. Not even the bucket list. None of that matters. When my mom wrote these journals to me, she didn't say, oh, I just hope someday you can make it into a great college. And uh, It wasn't even about my, my, my child or, my, or grandchildren, nothing, none of that. The most important thing on her mind, on her heart, as she literally was passing on, was that I would know Jesus, that I would know what it meant to submit to him. And she would write this in her journal. I'm going to read one of her journals. Again, this is probably one of the last probably week, weeks to months before she died. <coughs> I love this. This is, this is her legacy. Before affliction, I was not as bold or confident. He has brought me close to his heart, and I desire his word in my heart. As I know his word, I know my God. And knowing his word, delighting in it, has brought me peace, joy, and a fight not to give in. And yet I have relinquished the control to him. Lord, I love you more than ever. Use me for your service and let your compassion come to me that I may live. She also writes, I must cultivate a relationship with you. Apart from you, my life circumstances are dire. How help me to remove myself from the confines of my circumstances that I might look at you from a non-prejudiced point of view. Guide me in these thoughts. I long to grow. And then like the next day was, but you are silent. I keep thinking there must be something I can do. And she has dot, 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 yes. I must fix my eyes on you. Help me to have reverent submission. And that was probably in the last, like I said, the last couple weeks before she died. Um, if you look at that principle of what's in a person's heart comes out when they're closest to dying, think about Jesus. I love this. If you really kind of see the parallels, Jesus knows he's about to die. He knows that he is 
about to go. He's been here for a reason. He's been here for all that God has put him here for, and he's about to die, and he has, in John 15, uh, the Last Supper. He's with his disciples probably for the last time in this setting. And you think he sat there and we, all, we know what he said, but do you, you think he used that moment to speak on, I mean, he spent three years preaching on a lot of stuff, a lot. But what was dearest to his heart before he knows he was about to die, what did he speak on? I'm going to read it. It was funny, I walked back there during, after worship practice, and they were reading the scripture. I was like, this is so cool. John 15, 5. I'm going to kind of jump around, John 15, 5 and 12. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain or abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Remember, Jesus is our friend as well, so it means we lay our life down for him. 1720, when he's in the high priestly prayer, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. You can actually count about three different times where Jesus says to the Father and to his disciples that they may be one as we are one. I had written a lot of titles for my message today, um, and I probably deleted 15 of them, and every single one of them came back to the same topic over and over again, that when we encounter Jesus, um, he's going to ask us one question, and it is a, is a place of submission. The road to oneness, the road to this place where God says that I want to be one with you, has to be paved in submission. And it was so key to the Jesus. Jesus knew that nothing in your life mattered. Again, right after he said that is when Judas betrayed him, and then that was basically the last time we really hear Jesus say anything. He's just, I mean, there's a couple of things, but the last thing he really teaches is this oneness with the Father. He knew that apart from that, you can do absolutely nothing. So submission. Submission is that place of, you know, this. I give you my heart, Lord. And there is no other way. I mean, Jesus even teaches, says, and Jesus told his disciples, if anyone come after me, what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Okay, guys, there is no other way to the Holy of Holies but when that veil is torn. If you actually look at the, the design of the temple, you have the outer court, the inner court, and the most holy of holies. And in an actual reality, there was an actual curtain or veil that separated the inner courts from the, the most holy of holies. And it's awesome. It, and they have actually, if you actually look at history, on the actual day that Jesus died, this has actually happened. Histori- historians can confirm it. Um, that when Jesus died, he died on the actual day of Passover. And meanwhile, over here, all the priests are actually sacrificing bulls, and they actually would tie a white ribbon around. And miraculously, every time they would kill the bull, this white, uh, this red ribbon would turn to white. Jesus got crucified. As he crucified, what does scripture say happened? That veil was completely torn. was torn in half. And now that way from the Holy of Holies in the inner court was open to all, all who can come in. It was amazing. On that very day, they said that that, that, that ribbon that they would tie around, and it, it stayed red. It never turned back to white again. That actually happened. I love that. That veil, guys, is our flesh. There is absolutely no other way to the most Holy of Holies but, when, but unless that veil is torn. 
There's no like a secret hidden trap door you can make in there somehow or you can take that curtain, push it aside. There is no other way to the most holy of holies but through the tearing of that flesh. And that is the actual definition of submission. Okay? The Cambridge Dictionary actually defines submission as the act of accepting the power or authority of someone else. You notice how it says that submission is not the belief? It is the act. It is the actual act. If you want to, again, this place where the Lord wants to minister, I think, in the body right now, I think it's specifically not just over us, because this is always true for all of us, but he is moving Antioch Wheaton to this place as one body. Again, he wants to move us together, that if we want to continue to experience him and to know him and grow as disciples, we have to each in our own hearts begin to walk that road of submission. It has to happen. And it looks different for all of us, but at the end of the day, it's the flesh dying. And you notice how God says, you know, don't crucify yourself. God is the one that brings the death. All he asks us to do is kneel before him. That's all. I had a dream uh, 20 years ago. Uh, before I get, I get into scripture, I feel like I'm supposed to share this. I had a dream 20 years ago. And this is a dream, only, the only dream I've had in 20 years, actually my entire life, the only dream I had where Jesus actually came to me. So this isn't just some, some symbolic dream to be, you know, it, it, was an actually, it actually happened. In the dream, I was in this room, and I was actually out of body at this point, looking down at what was happening. And Jesus was standing there. He was in a white robe, couldn't see his face. And he was kneeling like this over me, and I was completely prostrate, prostrate on the floor, um, laying face down. And as he was praying over me, he had his hand about that far off my back. He wasn't touching me, but there was a about a foot or so, and he was just doing this, pushing down. And there was this fire pouring out of his hand. And as I'm going, as this is happening, the, at the ground level, my body started to sink below the, the ground level. I was like, like a foot below. As the dream progressed, I was two feet, three feet, four feet. I was just kept on going lower and lower. And he was praying really fast. And he was praying in a completely la- different language I've never heard. It was not tongues. It was a completely different language. And at the very end, he said something to me in, uh, in English. And he said, now, Dan, I will become your supplement. It took me a long time to actually to dig that up, what that meant. But all these things that I was struggling with at that time, career, I was right out of college. Career, do I go into ministry? Do I be a pastor? Do I get, you know, do we have kids? Do we do all these things? There's hundreds of things I was processing. And he basically came to me and says, look, Dan, I, he goes, if I called you for the rest of your life to only minister to me, Dan, would that be enough? that oneness, back to what Jesus, his number one goal in life for us is to be one with him. Would that be enough, Dan? And I actually told him no. Well, you called me to do good works. You called me. And he goes, no, Dan. He goes, will you be one with me? And he goes, now I actually take you to a season, Dan, where I'm going to take all of it, all these things that are supposed to be supplement to your life, I'm going to take them all. I'm going to envelop all of them. And And I've never stopped since. And it's been one of the most difficult things in my life t- to, l- to walk this road of submission. I mean, if you choose that road, and again, I have many, 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 many weaknesses. Um, but I know that, and I'm really coming to that place constantly of submitting before the Lord. But the part of that dream that I love the most is he never touched me. And the power, the pressure that came, you know, 
and the part that sticks with me is that I was below the ground. Submission is that place when you come to the cross and you lay down, and as he, as he brings death to self, you think death to self is just, oh, I'll bring this stronghold and that stronghold, die to this idea. And it is lower than low. And he desires, and you'll never stop. That's why I kept the, the dream, as the dream progresses and as my life progresses, and it's like that mountain, as you go higher, the higher you want to go in the Lord, the lower you have to go. The more he has to push you down in that place. It's pressure. I love the scripture about the narrow road. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. I'm going to read this. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. How many of you guys have read that scripture and actually see the road almost like this little narrow strip, like a tightrope? And it's almost like you're kind of walking, you have all these rules, and all Christianity has all these rules and all these things you can't do and all things you should do and all these things. And the reason that most people don't want the narrow road is because of that. They're afraid of, you know, I can't, I can't do it. You guys, that is, that is not what the Scripture means at all. This, the Greek word here for narrow mean, is telebo. I'm not even pronouncing that right, probably, but it sounded pretty. Telebo, it means to press. Okay, the actual meaning means a wine press. So the narrow road is not narrow in width. It is narrow in its function. The narrow road is a wine press. And the reason that most people don't make it, like back to my dream, most people that are falling off this mountain is because they don't understand that the pressure that comes is too much. And they're not willing to continue going. Again, I could stop dying to self right now and I would, I would make it. Death to self and submission is that place where God comes and he's constantly bringing it out of you. He's constantly, you're constantly renewing it and constantly laying it down more and more and more. And that is where the life comes. I mean, that's why when you stomp on the grapes in the wine press, that's when the new wine comes, guys. And that's where the life comes. Probably the most beautiful picture I have of submission is, um, is, is a flower. Um, I got into gardening probably five, six years ago. Um, never thought in my life I would do gardening, but it's funny. This time of year, I get all excited. You know, I go to Home Depot and I see all the, the seeds and the flowers. I'm like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> what is wrong with me? I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, half my plants die, but it's okay. <laughs> but a flower, guys. I love flowers. Submission is just like a flower. If you think of a rose that closes and opens, you know, by the moon and the sun, when the sun hits that flower, it just opens up. And that is a beautiful picture of what submission is. First, it's, it's reacting to the sun, interacting with it. It opens up and it exposes the stigma of the flower, which carries the pollen, which you can see where I'm going with this. When that pollen is exposed, which is our will, the Holy Spirit comes, or the bee. It's a cheap analogy, I know. But the bee comes and touches that, that stigma and touches that pollen, and then he goes and he does what? Produces fruit. Produces fruit. That is the Christian walk. You know, you don't, have, you don't even have to try to drum up submission, even. Submission is simply, Lord, I, my will is yours. That's it. When you do that, then his son comes, opens the flower, then his Holy Spirit comes, touches that stigma, and then this beautiful process of life begets life starts to happen. He produces the fruit. 
Um, that's why I love Galatians 5.22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You notice how it says it's the fruit of the Spirit? It's not the fruits. It's not like you can grow in a ton of love but not grow in faith. It's not like you can have a, I'm, I have so much joy, but I, my life's a mess. It is a singular fruit. It grows together. But again, the fruit is being produced. And that is the key I want to try to get across today, guys, is that it begins to beg the question, you know, let's pick faith, for instance, because this is the one I think that gets twisted the most. Um, can you produce more faith? Yes? No? I mean, I like to have interaction, so. Okay, I'm going to go into this a little bit here, because, uh, again, uh, it's just, just, it's set me free, guys. This, this, going into this, le- this part right here, I just, there's so much freedom on it. But I'm going to give you my opinion. Again, I, I, this is my opinion. I submit some of these things to you guys, take them to the Lord. But in my opinion, I personally do not believe that faith can be produced, coerced, worked up, manipulated, or generated. It has to be cultivated. It has to be cultivated. Um, the enemy does not care, guys, what side of the road you fall off on. He is the enemy of the extremes. If you ever see a pendulum swing, swings this way. That's why God says, I'm, I desire worshipers that worship me in spirit and in truth. You can't have one or the other. And we're always in that state of balance. We're, you know, I'm not walking in fullness of either. I'm, I'm trying, and I want it. But I've seen more damage done by, I, you know, you can have religious stuff swing all the way to the traditional side, like we think of traditional. It can swing just as far to charismatic side. I've actually seen more religious charismatics than I probably have traditional people because the enemy doesn't care. As long as he can pervert and twist, back to kind of what I shared before, wickedness means twisted truth. If he can taint it just a little bit and get you to open that door, 5, 10, 15 years later, you have whole theologies, whole doctrines that literally destroy people. When it comes to faith, uh, and again, if some of you believe these things, uh, my apologies, but again, I don't believe they're biblical. Word of faith doctrine, name it, claim it, speak it to existence, prosperity gospel. All these things are things that you generate in your own selves when you actually become God. And I don't think they're biblical. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you why. Um, Matthew 17, and actually you guys want to turn there. Matthew 17, we're going to sit on this for a little bit. Matthew 17, 14. I believe that the vein that you have to begin to understand Scripture is that you first and foremost have to look at the etymology of the words that are being used. You have to look at the context. You have to look at interpreting Scripture by other Scripture as the whole. And you have to always evaluate it by the character of God. Okay, when I'm looking at Matthew 17, ba- basically this whole story of faith starts really, if you kind of go back to Matthew 14, when um, really when Jesus is walking on the water, you get into the feeding of the 5,000, you get into Peter's uh, confession of the faith, and we're going to end today on Peter's confession of faith. Well, you kind of go through these five chapters, you see about five or six times where Jesus uses this phrase, O ye of little faith, right? How many of you are like me, and I'm, I'll admit it, every time I would read that scripture, it would leave me condemned, confused, that feeling I've got to produce something here. The best analogy I have, guys, is have you ever seen, have you ever driven through a town where they have like this huge poster and it's like, you know, save the high school mascot. We need to raise $25,000. And you have this little thermometer and it's like, we're at, you know, we're at, we're at 10, then 15, like that, you know, the mascot's not going to make it, right? And, <laughs> but you ever seen those things like they do a lot of times the holidays and like you see the thermometer rising 
It's almost like when I read the scripture, it's almost like I feel that. You can feel the religious spirit trying to draw you into saying, it's like you don't have enough faith. And we often sometimes read this as if Jesus is saying it that way. Oh, you have little faith. What does it often imply that you need? Well, I need more then, right? I don't believe that is at all what Jesus is saying here. Okay, I'm going to explain why here. I'm going to read this. Matthew 17, 14. And again, when you look at the context, I'm going I'm to explain this. Matthew 16, Jesus had just got done warning the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Basically, they didn't even understand what that meant. But he basically was saying that beware of the teachings of the Sadducees and, and, and Pharisees. Basically, that place of law, that place of formula, place of assumption. And he could already start to tell that the disciples were starting to walk in this assumption. Okay, because back in Matthew 10, uh, I'm just reading this real quick before we go into this, because again, it sets the context. Matthew 10, it says, Jesus summoned his disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Okay, and you start to see how the, the disciples started to treat that as an authority given to them, like a magic power or something, a, a bestowed power upon them. Okay, and you see how Jesus starts to call it out. So let's read it in verse 14. It says, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Now, I think he's saying that he's confronting it. There's, also, there's always life behind it because he never leaves it there. He's actually saying that to the crowd, but th- who's in the crowd? His disciples as well. Remember, he's saying you've already started to twist. Some of your translations may say perverted or wickedness, you wicked generation. He's saying you're already starting to twist what? Going back to what I, how I started, the number one thing, oneness with the Father, submission, and revelation from the Father. You're starting to twist it. How long shall I be with you? How shall long I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, I love this, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and by fasting. And so what is he saying? Okay. I don't believe God is measuring their faith. I believe he is defining it. He's comparing it and holding it in the light. He's saying what you're walking in right now is little compared to what is real. What you're walking in right now is little compared to if you even just had a mustard seed of the real thing, that can move mountains. He's comparing the two. About 15 years ago, I was in Liège, Belgium. I went on a mission trip there, and this mission trip was very specific. The Lord came to a group of people um, and said, I want you in this country on this day. I want you to be on this plane. I want you to be in this, a- this airport. <laughs> uh, basically, he said, we were going there for a prayer trip. Um, and as we got on the plane, we got there. We spent about five days walking the land, just praying. We would minister to some people. But the majority of the prayer night was one night. Um, 
we were sitting there and just kind of, we would wait and wait. And uh, about three hours into this, this waiting time, I'm like, I don't feel a single thing. And I looked over at my pastor, and he's just kind of sitting there, just enjoying the Lord. And, uh, and sometimes he would do this for seven hours. We're just kind of waiting for what God, we'd wait for God to come in and say exactly what. It's kind of like we go in, pray, and get out kind of thing. Um, I'm sitting there, and out of nowhere, um, this demonic spirit, um, for whatever reason, he was really small. <laughs> he came up to me, and terror started to, to fill my heart. And he starts talking to me and whispering to me and intimidating me. And he says to me, um, I'm going to kill your wife. I'm going to kill your dog. I'm like, no, not the dog. I'm going to burn your house down. And he's saying it over and over again. Again, this is going on for about a half hour. And I could feel myself trying to generate faith. I was going back to all the things I had learned about warfare, and, like, and I started quoting scripture. In the name of Jesus, get out of here. And as I engaged with him, I'm trying to generate this faith, because I'd done it before that way. He got bigger, louder, bigger, and louder. And I, and I was quoting scriptures, you know, that you're a snake, and you're underneath my heel, and all these things went on and on and on, and he got bigger and louder. And I am at this point really believing he's about literally being dispatched by Satan himself to go kill my wife, my dog, and burn my house to the ground. Slowly but surely, in deep in my gut, as I started to submit to the Lord, I could feel the Holy Spirit begin to draw me into this place of true oneness with the Father. I could feel faith starting to stir up inside of me. And again, when Jesus says, he goes, guys, Jesus, I think, did it really quick and just cast the demon out. But he says, this one actually comes out by prayer and fasting. And if you actually were walking in true faith, even just the size of a mustard seed, you would have known that this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. The Father would have revealed that to you. So as I'm sitting here, I'm terrified, and I feel just this peace come over me. I love the worship song you guys do about how he prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. It's almost always how he does, he does it. And he starts speaking to me about his character and his goodness. And he says, Dan, nothing passes through my fingers without me knowing or me letting it. Just like Job. He goes, nothing. Do you trust me? Even if your wife dies, even if your dog dies, even if your house burns to the ground. And at that moment, I said, yes, Lord. Even if, even if all that happens, I trust that you allowed it to happen. And you're sovereign you are God, may your will be done. Just like that. I didn't even have to command the enemy out. I didn't have to tell him to leave the room. Nothing. He left that room so quickly. It was amazing because the rest of that night, the Lord walked in the room and just began to minister some amazing things. My point is, is that I didn't have to generate the faith. I didn't have to work my soul up into a place and drum it all up and say, that's faith. At best, it's just soul power. There's a great book out there. I love Watchman Nee. I love the stuff about body, soul, and spirit and what, you know, the difference between soul power or the difference between that and the power that God puts in your spirit. I love, I love etymology, which is basically the study of words in the Greek. I love when God talks about how, how uh, you have a form of godliness, but you deny its power. You know what that Greek word is for power? It's dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. 
dynamite. He gives you a power that is so explosive because it comes from him. It comes from the Father. Revelation is warfare. I actually had written down revelation leads to warfare. Actually, no. Revelation just simply is warfare. When you engage in oneness with the Father that comes through submission, revelation is inevitable. It will happen. And when that happens, you are engaging hell itself. And the enemy trembles at that. Let me, let me tell you something. The enemy does not get scared at your ramblings and your even quoting scripture. Now, he, he, does, he does freak out when the quoting of scripture comes from a place of submission and, and the Lord is breathing life into it. He hates that too. My point is, is that where is it being generated from? Because if you're generating in your own soul, it's little. It's little compared to what is real. And by the way, a mustard seed is actually the smallest seed, uh, one of the smallest seeds on the face of the earth. God was trying to, po- to prove a point that if you even taste of this, that's where the true power resides. I'm going to read this. There's a great writer who wrote it. I'm not going to say who. <laughs> Faith is not something we can produce. We engage our spirit and free will with the Spirit of God, and he generates faith. Faith is not mind over matter. Faith is not something you can drum up. Faith is not simply modifying your behavior, but it's being transformed by the Spirit of God within you, and he generates the faith. Revelation from the Father is not something that we have to muster up. Stillness and submission of heart always allows God to deposit in you the faith and the weapons that you need for any given moment. That's why God says, in rest and repentance, is your salvation. I got about 10 minutes. I want to end on this, guys. I love this whole thing about how submission leads to revelation, and there's no greater form of warfare. Um, if you ever get a chance, we're going we're gonna to jump over real quick here to Matthew 16, and we're going to pick up in uh, 16, 13 through 18, and this is the whole interaction that Jesus has with Peter when he asks, who do you say that I am? Yeah, but I'm going to set this up. Again, coming back to the paradigm of how you interpret Scripture, you have to understand context. And context for this Scripture means everything. And this is, I get kind of like a geek when I get into history, and I love, I love looking at patterns. I, I just love this. Um, so I'm going to set this up a little bit. And so um, I don't want to bore anybody, but if you ever want to learn about this history, you can, you can Google it. You can, there's tons of information. But this whole... Scripture starts off when Jesus says, and they entered into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, and so I'm going to actually share a little bit what that means. Okay, about eight years ago, I had a chance to go to Israel. Uh, Jenny and I, uh, it was outstanding. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, for whatever reason, go. Go, go, go. Um, We had the privilege to go with the ministry. We went there for some ministry. We went there for... um, some mission trip, a lot, of, a lot of it was prayer, but a lot of it too was just engaging with the culture, seeing, learning. Uh, we had a messianic, spirit-filled uh, Jewish tour guide. It's awesome. Just like crazy awesome. This guy was saved, obviously. He believed in the gift of the Spirit. He believed in understanding not just, oh, hey, here's the place where Jesus is crucified, or, or here's where the Jordan is, you know. He understood the spiritual significance of each location. He understood not just through history, but he understood the spiritual realm as well and how it's played out. Um, we would be driving down the road, and he'd be on one of his little, those little, uh, you know, you know, hello, how are you doing? He's like, 
if you look out your right window at this moment, you can see the field to your right. And we all be like, what? He's like, that field right there has been proven to be the field that David and Goliath fought in. And you're like, what? And he goes, and see that creek over there? And he goes, they've proven that's probably the creek that David got his stones out of. And you're like, what? This is like mind-blowing. Um, but we went to all kinds of places. I got baptized in the Jordan. We went to all different places. And um, as we would go along, we would pray and we would minister. It was just awesome. He took us to an area called um, Banias. Okay, Banias is the present-day name for Panias, which was back during Jesus' time, and even before that was called Panias. Um, they, don't, they don't pronounce the word P in Arabic, so they named it Banias. You can actually look on your map. It's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, there's about four to three miles, uh, I think, due east of Dan, the city of Dan. You'll see that in the Old Testament as well. Uh, it's at the northern reaches of Israel. As, he, as our tour guide took us into this area, we stood there. I'll never forget it. I was standing there, and he starts to share the history of this area. And he goes, this is the area where Jesus came and began to minister to Peter and his disciples and basically proclaimed himself as Messiah. And he went into the history. And again, I'm not going to do him justice because, again, he's, he, he was brilliant at it. But again, I'm going to just give you a real quick recap. Well, this will take me two minutes, and then we're going to end. A quick recap of the history of the place and a real quick spiritual understanding of the dynamic. Um, again, it's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's at the base of Mount Hermon. Uh, some believe that's, believe that's where the transfiguration happened. Um, Let's see, uh, it's the base of Mount Hermon location. It's one of the largest springs feeding into the Jordan River. Okay, and even Josephus writes about this, that the cave, and I saw the cave. The cave is, is, is nothing, I mean, it's beautiful, and the, the creek that comes out from underneath it, and there's all these etchings, and the, there's all these, like, indentations in the wall where they used to put all the pagan gods. And <laughs> this, this cave, though, is filled with rock now because a huge earthquake came. I just, I just think that's God just coming and just shutting it down. Um, but this cave, at one point, the water would bubble up from it, and it was so deep that Josephus writes that there was no measurement able to measure it. They actually had a cord that would go down 800 feet, and it still never reached bottom. Okay, and so you have this cave here, and this is one of the major sources at the Mount of Hermon. And there's so many different symbolisms you can pull from that in Scripture. But for the time's sake, it's a beautiful place, but it's also a very, very dark place. Very dark and the time of Jesus was known as the red light district. Just like in Amsterdam, it was known as the red light district of the area. Okay. This is the place where the ancient Canaanites built a sanctuary to Baal. It was in this area that the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, led the northern kingdom of Israel into idolatry. Around 3rd century B.C., the place was so striking that it impressed Alexander the Great, and the Greeks built a sanctuary there. Natural features not only impressed the Greeks, but they believed them to be dwelling place of the gods. And nothing produced more awe and more terror than a place identified as a cave where the god of Pan dwelt. That's why they called Peneus. In 20 BC, Augustus gave Herod the Great, and this is the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus, control over the area of Peneus. Herod built a large temple here as well, and he called it Augustium. And when he died, the area was given, uh, Peneus was given rulership to his son, Philip. And Philip was into himself, so he named it after his Caesar and after himself. That's why they called it Caesarea Philippi. There was also in the same place where the Greeks and the Romans, this was the place where they received revelations from the god of Pan. 
who was mentioned in classical writings as a seer or fortune teller and a giver of revelations. He was depicted as a man with goat legs and would play the pipes, which is why they get the pan pipe. People would sacrifice and do despicable acts for Pan. He was also known to make noises in the woods and in the cave, and he would inflict terror on the people. He's a great guy, guys. That's where we get our word panic from. And the pagans would drop their dead animals and sacrifices into the cave, and the presence of blood downstream was seen as a sign that gods have accepted it. It was known as the red light district, and it was a hot spot for demonic activity. Here's the key. It was known, and this is not just in it was known in the time as the portal to hell. It was a gateway to the underworld, and it was called the Gates of Hades. Okay, and you'll see why that's significant here as we go into the scripture. But again, a little teaching here before we go. I got, I got five minutes. This area, when you look at the God of Pan, and you look at Baal, you look at the gods of Egypt, these aren't just some mythical things that people worshipped and it kind of was just like this real innocent thing. It wasn't. These are actual demonic spirits that have reign and rule over certain regions. If you actually look in Ephesians chapter, I love this, uh, Ephesians 6, uh, verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be alive to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness. If you actually break, I'm not going to go into this now, but if you break all three of those down, it actually is th- the rankings of the demonic. And it's, it's true not only in the demonic, it's true in the angelic as well. Just as you have, have the president, you have the general, the five-star generals, and you've got the captains, the lieutenants, all the way down to the foot soldiers, that is how the army of Satan and the army of God are also structured. You can even see how uh, one of the Greek words here for rulers is archetype. Michael would be a power over Israel, the angel Michael. There are also different uh, demonic spirits that are over these regions. So the God of Pan, guess what? He's not just some mythical God that people sacrifice. He's an actual demonic archetype over that area. And the sins and the, the sacrifices, all those things feed up into that stronghold. We tear down strongholds by not feeding our flesh. What did God say when he cursed, when he cursed the, the snake in the garden? He says, now going forward, you'll eat of the dust of the earth. Who's made out of the dust of the earth? We are. When we sin, we're literally feeding the demonic. We also, though, can starve the demonic and break down strongholds by holiness, by righteousness, by submission to the Lord. That is what tears down strongholds. So let's go back here. Jesus walks into this area, and you have this all taking place. Why did he go there? Because the northern part, no one went there. He actually was only named twice in all of Scripture that he was in that area. Why didn't he say it in Jerusalem? Why didn't he say it in Bethlehem? Why did he, why did he go there? I'll leave you guys to chew on that a little bit. But. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of of Hades 
will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whether you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Guys, he is standing right in this area that is called the gates of Hades. He is not only proclaiming to his disciples, he is proclaiming to the spirit world, listen up. It's like your time has come. You ever notice that gates don't attack? They're defensive. Revelation, though, is what destroys gates of hell. How many have ever read the scripture and thought that Jesus was saying to Peter that I'm going to build my church upon you? I thought that literally for years. And I actually <laughs> preached messages about how we can work up our soul, we can work up our Christianity so much so that God can count us worthy to be part of his foundation. He can build upon you and he can have a great ministry. I actually teach that. I taught that once and I couldn't have been more wrong. The name Peter here is Petros, which means rock or rock man. That's what he calls Peter. In the next phrase, Christ used Petra upon this rock, a feminine form of the rock in the Greek, not a name. Christ used a play on words. He does not say upon you, Peter, or upon your successors, but upon this rock, upon this divine revelation and profession of faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, again, interpreting scripture by scripture, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is saying to Peter and his disciples, he goes, blessed are you, Simon, because my Father, who is in heaven, again, back to because you are walking in oneness with him right now, you're walking in a life of submission. My Father has revealed it to you, and in that revelation, the gates of Hades cannot stand against it. The band can come on up. Back to how I, I kind of started this with that, that mountain. First and foremost, you want to climb the mountain because it is worth it. It is worth it. Andy and I had a, a conversation just before church about how life is just like a drop in the ocean. This is just a moment in time, guys. I really believe um, that heaven, when we get to go into heaven, I believe we're going to have movie nights. We're going to be chomping on popcorn. I'm going to be pulling on Moses' beard. I'm going to be messing with Peter. And we're going to see like a, a movie of our life. We're going to see the ripple effect that all the choices um, we made. I'm going to see the ripple effect. The warfare that I went through this week, I'm going to see the, the ripple effect. Let's say this message, God gives you revelation. My message is nothing. But the revelation that God can give you through it, what is he doing in you? That's what excites me. Because as you submit your heart before him and as he begins to move on you and as you begin to make a choice like that flower to open yourself up to him, what ripple effect will you have when you leave out of here and you go to the next person? And it's like I'm gonna, we're going to be able to see that ripple effect in heaven of what our choices, you know, we are, when we're sifted and we're being pressed. I'm, I'm telling you guys, it is one of the hardest things. There are times... I actually had a conversation with myself this week. It's like, I'm never speaking again. <laughs> I'm never going to minister again because every time I do, the warfare is just like. <clears throat> but every time I kept on submitting all week long, all week long, kept on submitting. Like, no, Lord, I will be obedient because this is what you call me to do. And out of that submission, I don't have to drum up anything. I don't have to convince you guys of anything. My heart, though, is that God can take anything that I say and bring life, life to you guys. 
because I've experienced it too, and I know many people in here have experienced it as well. So as we go on this last song, um, I don't even know if we need people up here ministering, it's fine, but I just feel like each of us is in that place where don't wait for your life to get really bad, all of a sudden I need prayer. Every one of us today, God, it's a daily thing. This is a call to every single one of us, including me, that are you going to submit your heart today before God? Because oneness with him is everything. When he was about to die, he made it his number one goal for us to know that, that you can do nothing apart from him.